So, good morning. Here we are again. And we're opening back up to the book of Galatians. We talked last time about kind of embarking on this new series called Radical Grace, which is focusing on the powerful, life-changing, life-reorienting grace of God that affects us each and every day. We have the profound changes that God makes, that Christ makes in our heart and our lives and our attitudes and our mentality about things. We are a new creature. We have probably heard sermons and topics about that preached about a billion and one times. So we understand it to be true that when we're changed by God, it is a profound change. So we talked last time about how this this transformation that God has worked upon us makes us all new people. But beyond that too, it frees us up from a lot of the stuff that our old people were so prone to get locked into. Okay? Paul used in his opening chapter of Galatians, he used the traditions of his Jewish fathers as his kind of linchpin as to the thing that this radical grace changed him from. Okay? So of all of the things that you could put on a list, of all the things that Paul might have been able to write down and say, okay, this is how it changed me, and this is how it changed me, and this is how it changed me, which he does go into some detail. He talks about being changed from being kind of a a murderous villain of the church to its like chiefest apostle. Well, that's a pretty big turnaround, and we talked about that's why Paul is so intriguing to me, because it's almost like God did it on purpose or something, you know? Chose him on purpose. Chose this particular guy on purpose for the job that he had called him to do on purpose. It's almost like God had some kind of ulterior motive in what he was doing. Because to pick Paul of all people was a dramatic kind of symbol of just what God can do with his radical grace. I mean, he'd already been grabbing other people. He's grabbed prostitutes. He's grabbed tax collectors. He's grabbed women possessed with seven demons. I mean, he's grabbed all these people and definitely shown his power over this. This is his kind of testimony to his power and change over the entrenched legalistic Phariseeism that Christ preached about for like three and a half years. And God said, no, let me just show you how my grace even affects you. You who think you're so perfect already. You who think you've already got it all together already. I mean, no Pharisee was walking around going, I am deficient in my walk with Jehovah. Every one of them was walking around going, not only am I not deficient, I am more sufficient than anybody else. I am the best, actually. I am the most correct. I'm the most adamant. I'm the most 
zealous. In fact, you want me to show you how zealous I am? I will go round up and kill Christians who we believe are blasphemers. That's how zealous I am. That's how far I'll go. There is no line. There is no inch. There is no dot, no T, nothing that I am leaving undone. I will do it all. I mean, that's, that's what their MO was. I mean, that's how they got their claim to fame. That's why Pharisees took off and became so powerful because they were the ultra-Orthodox zealots of the Jewish faith. And they filled a void there. So Paul uses that as kind of his thing. He says, if you're talking about like what it is, the person who I was, I was one who was a Pharisee of the Pharisee who zealously kept the traditions of my father. And you want to know how that played out? I rounded up and killed Christians because I believed them to be blasphemous opposers of the law of Moses. We talked about how your misguided zeal, even in things that are religious and even in religious things that in this case, tie back to Jehovah, tie back to God, can be misplaced, misappropriated, misapplied. Paul felt he was 100% correct in what he was doing. He wasn't, he wasn't going off on some kind of crazy homicidal limb. He wasn't going off. I mean, it's not like he got hooked on drugs and was doing things he didn't have. No, he thought he was actually doing right in this. That's what's so terrifying about it. And Jesus even makes the point when he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, I've, I've, I've not come to save the righteous. I've come to save Sinners, And the problem is you don't realize that you're sinners. That's your issue. Paul didn't think he was a sinner. While he was committing that gravest of sins, thou shalt not murder. You know, I mean, he didn't think he was a sinner. In fact, he just thought he was doing what was supposed to be done. But the most important thing that we grab from this is Paul uses his experience in the Jewish establishment to say, and when Christ radically changed me by his grace, it didn't just make me a new creature that had a heart of love and compassion and mercy, and I quit killing folks, and I, you know, it wasn't just that. He said it also set me free from the trappings of the old man. And what what Paul was saying was his trappings wasn't drugs, wasn't alcoholism, wasn't prostitution or whatever. It wasn't those kind of things. Paul said, it set me free from overzealous traditionalism. That's what I was set free from. He said, I'm still circumcised. I didn't have some kind of surgical correction of that. He said, I'm still a... Jew and hard. In fact, in Romans, he writes, he says, my people, I would, I, I pray God would save all of my people because I bear them record. They do. They have this zeal like I once did. Now, again, it was a little misplaced, but you know, we got some problems with that, but they are still a people that God set apart and called by his name. I wish they all were saved, but Paul makes the point to say, I was let go from that to something better. 
the radical grace of Christ didn't just change me, but changed what I was attached to and in some cases trapped by. So he's using this idea of, and this is the one, this is the word, this is what we're going to get into today, religious liberty or Christian liberty, okay? Christian liberty. It is a phrase that is in the church, okay? And we use it a lot in different applications. Most of the time it's applying to practices from one church to another, okay? Paul here is going to be, this is kind of Paul's whole main idea in the entire book of Galatians, is Christian liberty. Between one church and another. The Christian liberty between the church at Galatia, which was a primary Gentile church, and the church at Jerusalem, which is a primary Jewish church. I mean, that's what's going to underpin a lot of his arguments. That's why when he makes the point in the first chapter that it is from those things that I was set free. Okay, that's what he's talking about. There were things that bound him as a Jew circumcision, keeping of the law, eating certain things, all that stuff, those things that bound him by his culture, by his religion, by his practice. He says, I was set free from that. It's not something that God holds still over our heads and says, yes, we did send Jesus. And yes, Jesus did accomplish everything, but you're going to have to keep the law. You're going to have to keep either the circumcision portion of the law, or you're going to have to keep the dietary portions of the law. There's still restrictions placed on you as far as how you can operate within this radical change in grace of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole argument through this is that's done away with. This beautiful thing is the fact when Christ fulfilled the law, guess what it did? It kind of fulfilled the law, which means those things are no longer requirements. Okay. For what you would consider your salvation. And even more importantly. Even more importantly. All right. Those things cannot come back in. And try to replace Jesus. Okay. And that's really what they were getting at in this first chapter. You are trying to preach another gospel, which is not another gospel because there is not another gospel. The gospel is the good news of the salvation in Jesus Christ. If you try to put salvation into anything else besides Jesus, i.e. circumcision, then you have now preached, quote unquote, another gospel, but it's not really gospel because you can't be saved that way. So you're really just preaching a man-made, man-centric institution to be the way to justify yourself. And this comes up in Acts chapter 15 that hopefully we're going to be able to get to. But here in chapter 2, he continues on his discussion that he was having. at Where he left off last time, which I don't think I got all the way through it, but he made the point that after I was taken by Christ on the road, after that I went to see, go into Antioch, I went into Arabia, I went, he talks about how he kind of went around, he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem, is what he's getting at. His whole idea behind this is, I did not require the church at Jerusalem's blessing on me to be an apostle, okay? Nor did the church at Galatia require the church of Jerusalem's approval to be a church, okay? 
nor did the church at Galatia have to follow the exact same customs and practices of the church at Jerusalem to be a church that follows Jesus Christ, okay? That's Paul's argument through this entire book and several other ones. It's the idea of Christian liberty. The church at Galatia is a church made up of a lot of different people than the church at Jerusalem, and the church at Jerusalem does not have the authority to look at the church at Galatia and say, if you don't act the way that we act, you're not a real church. Paul says, you've been set free from all that. In fact, Christ died on the cross to set you free from all that. From religious institutionalism that would dictate to you, based off of things men concocted, what makes you a real church or not. In fact, the beautiful picture we get in the New Testament is all of these different churches who looked differently from each other, all united under the banner of Jesus Christ, serving God in their uniqueness, which is how God created them. We have this bad habit of wanting to homogenize everyone into one mold. And that completely strips away the diversity God gave in the world. If y'all wanted us to look the same, guess what? We wouldn't have different races. If y'all wanted us to sound the same, we wouldn't all talk the same way. If he wanted us to be all the exact same cookie cutter images, then I feel like God would have already done that. He didn't need our help on that, okay? And God said, I created each, even in the, even in a population, I know I'm kind of like way down the road on this, but listen, even in a population that all looks the same, we are different. And our needs here in Jasper, Alabama are different than the needs of someone in Birmingham, Alabama are different than the needs of somebody out in Kesey, Kenya. And God didn't say, well, I need you Kesey to look a lot like the church in Jasper. You want to know why? Because they don't need to look like us. They don't have our needs. Their entire customs and traditions and relations, everything's different. If we tried to take our social construct and put it on them, it wouldn't work. Their ideas of social strata and everything is completely different. I mean, even an anthropologist or sociologist would look at you like you're crazy And most of the time they do. If you try to take a Western view of life and apply it to an Easterner's view of life. We talked about this a little bit in the church history thing when you talked about the split between the East and the Western church. The Eastern church in Constantinople, Byzantine area going East, they had a more mystical view of things than the rationalized Western, quote unquote, rationalized Westernized church. So there was different aspects of the liturgy and things that they fell in love with. You say, oh, well, what's the right way is for the Eastern church to stop being so mystic and be more rational like we are. And what the Eastern church would say, what's the right way is for the Western church to be stop being so fuddy-duddy rational and realize that there's a little bit of mysticism that's in this, okay? I mean, even Peter would say and Paul would say and others and James and Ringo and all them would say, it's all, it's, it's all a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. So even they are writing on, there's a little bit of mysteriousness about this. That's still, anyway, all that being said, we can't force each other into this one universal mold because that's not how God created us. He created us to be different. 
Even in this room, there's a lot of differences. And God didn't say all of y'all need to be like Adam. Thank God that all of y'all aren't like Adam, okay? Amen. Talking about this Adam, not that I could have gone like, you know, our forefather Adam, you know, and thrown it off on him. But he created us all different. In fact, he speaks about that about a billion times. I created you differently. I gifted you differently. I called you differently. You all have your own unique calling. You're going to go through different things in life. It's going to uniquely equip you and only you and nobody else. And he says, and here's the beautiful thing. I said, all y'all come into the building and together as the body, we will accomplish the mission with all of our differences and all of our uniqueness. So the same thing goes with the church. The church at Galatia did not look at the church like the church at Jerusalem. In fact, there was a whole lot of brothers in there who weren't circumcised, which is what the problem is here. And there was people who came from the church at Jerusalem going, and most of them were erroneous, you know, people who weren't truly representing the church as they should. And they came up to Galatia and said, oh, no, 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 no. We got a big problem here. The church at Jerusalem still circumcises people. And I see y'all aren't doing that practice. If you're going to be a real church of Jesus, you've got to be circumcised too. Who told you that circumcision was off the table? So Paul, and I I go through all of this to lay a lot of background because you have to have that in mind as you go through the rest of this book. Because Paul's going to come back to this rallying cry of Christian liberty. God called us uniquely. God called us in unique spaces and places and cultures and backgrounds. And what Paul's argument from day, from the very first chapter was that thing of circumcision. That's fine if you want to keep it going, Jerusalem church, as long as you don't try to replace Jesus with it. And number two, don't go to other churches, especially Gentile churches, telling them that's all well and good. But you better be circumcised and try to replace Jesus with it. Okay. And that's why Paul gets fired up about this. But it also gets into, it starts, the the whole culture war thing starts disseminating through this. And you start seeing some very prominent leaders falling in in place with it too. So in chapter 2, he starts off and it says, After 14 years, after I went up again to Jerusalem, I took Barnabas with me. Now this is again, three years after he had been with Ananias. Three years he had gone around into Syria and those areas. Three years he was already preaching, teaching, being an apostle. Okay, He was already doing his apostle duties for about three years. And then he went to Jerusalem. Okay, That was the first time. This is the second time. He says, after 14 years... I went up again. And what Paul was making the point of is he said, I didn't go to Jerusalem to get their blessing. I didn't need it. I got struck down on the road to Damascus by Jesus. I don't need Jerusalem's blessing. Okay. He's making the point that Jesus called me outside of the Jerusalem church. Called me outside of the orthodoxy called me outside of the central point called me outside of the starting point he called me out on a road as i was going to go kill christians very far away from the orthodox center i didn't have their blessing i didn't come from peter or james or any of them i came on this road jesus struck me down i went to ananias and then i started preaching doing what christ had called me to do three years later i went to the jerusalem church And presented myself before them to tell them what all had been going on in the areas of Syria and Galatia and all that. Now he says, I came back 14 years later with Barnabas and I also took Titus with me, who was a Greek, who was not circumcised. 
And I went by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached amongst the Gentiles and privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now, his whole thing is, is he's kind of taking a... You know, cosmopolitan, not going to ruffle too many feathers approach because I want to get my point across. I don't just want to go in there with fire and fury and throw a torch in the middle of it. He does that here, but I'm going to show you in just a second where he does not take that approach. Okay. He says, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He says, we went there to Jerusalem the second go around. I had a Greek with me again. And nobody pushed us to be circumcised because back in Acts chapter 15, we had already handled this issue. Okay. Same people who were causing problems in Acts chapter 15 have come out and they're causing problems again. Pharisees amongst the Christian church, literal Pharisees amongst the Christian church, some of which I'm going to say were actual believers, others of which were doing what they've always done, which is jump on the bandwagon, get on this and try to start start trouble, which is what they were doing in Galatia. He says, and that was because false brethren had snuck in to spy out our liberty. That is the Christian liberty thing we're talking about, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And again, that's not arrest you and throw you in prison. That's we want to get you back on board with this whole, you know, law, circumcision man-centric religion thing to whom we gave place by subjection no not for an hour which is a fancy way to say we didn't even give them the time of day okay that the truth of the gospel might continue with you said we totally gave them the cold shoulder and blew them off why because i'm not going to entertain their erroneous statements for one stinking minute It is a bondage, not an alternative lifestyle. It is a religious oppression, not the freedom that Christ died for. So Paul, of all people, is going, Christ died and then like met me on the road to Damascus. It was this big dramatic thing, okay? And it it set me free from all of this stuff. So I'm not going to entertain it for a minute. I'm not going to let them come in and kind of all, you know, give an alternate point of view on it and see who wins. No, I'm not going to let you, Gentile church at Galatia, get corrupted and brought into this bondage, but more importantly, get led away from Jesus Christ. Okay, because that's the end game of this. The end game of what their goal is, is let's reintroduce circumcision as the central focus of salvation. Okay? Because if we do that, which is what he talks about in Acts chapter 15, if you do that, then now you have recentered it back on man's religion. You've recentered it back on man's kind of actions. You've recentered it literally back on man's body in this case. As the marker of true salvation. But number two, you're drifting completely away from freedom, change, radical grace of Jesus Christ. So when you flip over to Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to read section of it. I'm not going to read all of it. It's a very lengthy chapter. We don't have time. But in Acts chapter 15, this is kind of where what's called the Jerusalem Council. Okay, and this is where the Jerusalem church met with 
Peter, Paul, and Barnabas discussing the Gentile issue. What do we do with the Gentile church? If you remember Peter, we'd already had a little encounter. Peter got called to Joppa. Peter saw the sheet. Peter saw all these things. And Peter came back going, well, the Holy Spirit's with the Gentiles. Okay. At the same time as all this is kind of happening over here, Paul's out here getting struck down on the road to Damascus and starts preaching to Gentiles out in Galatia and Syria and all these other areas. So then they come back because there's this question, what do we do? Do we compel the Gentiles to start still follow the things, the practices that the original church at Jerusalem was doing, which was very Jewish because they were all Jews. So they were still circumcising on the eighth day. They were still doing things that were kind of based off the law. We'll see some of that in here. And what the question was is, is it a requirement for all of them to do this? Should the church, wherever it may be and whoever it's made of, still keep these practices we hold to be so dear? Okay. Now, the other thing is, is just like in the normal de-evolution, okay, of any kind of good thought or principle, you take things like circumcision, which the Jerusalem church was still practicing, which they didn't think necessarily was going to get them salvation or deliver them from their sins or anything like that. They just thought, that's my custom, my practice, that's my Jewish heritage, that's what I'm going to continue to do, okay? It goes way back beyond the, before the law, okay? It's beyond the law. It goes way back to Abraham. Keeping that up, not a big deal, okay? But, as I said, in good de-evolution of man's nature, especially when you get people who have malicious intent behind it, you will take good, symbolic practices that God has instituted and change them into being the center focal point. The main point, kind of above God. The brazen serpent is a great example of that. So the brazen serpent was this thing that when everybody got bit by the snakes in the wilderness, God said, make a serpent out of brass, put him up on a pole. Whoever looks at it and has been bitten, they'll live. Okay, great teaching moment. Okay, got the point across. Lots of people died. All right, good teaching moment. God said, take that brazen serpent and put it in with the ark too because we want you to keep it up and you can kind of hold it up as a memorial going, hey, remember when y'all disobeyed me? All right, fast forward a few generations and you'll read where the people had taken that brazen serpent, set it up beside the altar, and they were actually worshiping the brazen serpent. Okay? Good right imagery, good right thing given by God for a purpose to teach. God told them to remember it. Man in his fallen, corrupt, wicked nature took it and turned it into an idol to worship as the means of salvation beyond God. Okay? Circumcision. Good and right institution. Put in place by God. Given to Abraham. Good thing to do. All right? It's not something that's negative or something that we shouldn't do or something that is Old Testament fuddy-duddy or something that was just belonging to the Jews and doesn't belong to other, others of us. There was a time in history where people were so anti-Jewish culture, anti-Jewish anything, that there's like a whole lot of people who didn't get circumcised for the sheer purpose of we're not going to be like a Jew, okay? There's nothing wrong with it, Okay? There's nothing necessarily, you know, I, I, I would go at this point in this day and age, I don't think there's anything super spiritually beneficial to it, okay? But if you want to do it, there's nothing wrong to doing it. If you want to do it because you said, hey, Jesus, I mean, God told Abraham to do it, so I want to do it. Okay, go for it. Knock yourselves out, all right? 
But in the true corrupt nature of man who's going to try to make everything about themselves, they'll take the circumcision. And in this case in point, they're going to put it up here and say, nope, it takes primacy. It's actually pushing God out of the way. We've already had a church established. Holy Ghost has already been laying on people. People have already been eating pigs and all sorts of other stuff. But we're going to come back and we're going to go, nope, circumcision. You got it or you don't. If you don't, you better get it or else. Okay? So in chapter 15 of Acts, that's what this debate is about. Because it says, certain men which came down from Judea. So he's talking about them going to these areas of Syria and Antioch and all those places where Paul had been. Okay? He says, certain men from Judea, some people from the Jerusalem area, from the Orthodox center, came down and taught the brethren and said, except you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what was said. Good and right Jewish practice. Okay. Nothing wrong with it. Keep it up, Jerusalem church. In fact, if you want to do that, knock yourselves out. Do it on the eighth day. Be as orthodox as you want to be. Nothing wrong with it. If you thought it was a good practice, a good religious spiritual exercise, and you wanted to recommend it to the, Jerusalem, to the churches of Syria and Galatia and the Gentile church and say, hey guys, this is just a really awesome old school thing that's been going on since Abraham, the first covenant, which you are included in. All nations of the world will be blessed by you, okay? This is where you're at. If you want to join in, join in, man. It's a good spiritual practice. God gave it. The first thing that he really gave to Abraham, this is what he gave him. Join in. Man in his natural corrupt fallen state, especially these false brethren that are here, took that and said, we're going to use the church... As a means to go back out and rebind people to Judaism. So they didn't go out and say, Jesus is great, we love him. Jesus is fantastic, but you really need to be circumcised. Jesus died for you and saved you from your sins. You are saved, you're delivered, don't worry about it. Circumcision is a good practice, though, I would encourage you to do it. That's not what they said. They want to get Jesus out of the picture. The reason they want to get Jesus out of the picture is because if Jesus took care of it all, then what's there left for you to do? The beautiful thing is nothing because there's nothing we could do. All right. The problem is that doesn't work when you are building your power and your prestige off of your religious traditions. The way the Pharisees kept in power is because they were the key holders to the traditions. They're the only ones that were doing them right. So here they've gone back out and now they're going to these Gentile churches and they're saying, if you are not circumcised, you cannot be saved. So now they've taken Jesus down off the cross and put circumcision back up there and said, nope, it's by keeping the law. It's by the circumcision. Now, I won't read it all, but as he goes through here, you know, Peter and Paul and Barnabas all kind of get on this and go, guys, It's already happened to the Gentile church. Uncircumcised, they were born again. Uncircumcised, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them. Uncircumcised, I I baptized them in Joppa. You know, Peter and all of them are making these arguments like, you can talk about circumcision and whether they need to be circumcised at all you want to. What I'm telling you is, is God's kind of already beat us to the punch. 
These people were born again without being circumcised, which means circumcision is not required for salvation. They had already been saved. The Holy Spirit was already working in them. They were already doing it. They were already living as born again, saved believers. So then what is the purpose of circumcision? Well, again, not a whole lot. Maybe it makes you feel more conscientious of your heritage, but it does not have anything to do with your salvation. But that's what these false brethren had done. They had gone back up to Galatia in those areas and they had said, nope, got to be circumcised or you can't be saved. Well, now you've dethroned Jesus and you've put this man's man-centric thing. And I know it was created by God, but it, has be, it is a man-centric thing. It is required on you to do it. And if we're honest and anatomically correct, only men, okay? So you really have weeded out a whole lot of the population from salvation, okay? I don't know how they were addressing that with the women. Maybe they didn't really care a whole lot about the women. But in this case, with the men... You've saved the male population and good luck to all the women going to burn in hell now, okay? If you have made salvation dependent on circumcision, we have eliminated half the population for eternity, okay? So the idea behind this, though, at the church, at the Jerusalem council is they were going to go back and they were trying to persuade the Jerusalem church, the area of orthodoxy, the place where the Pharisees came from and say, you need to tell these people they're not part of us, which is what they did. Anybody going out from Jerusalem saying that you must be circumcised to be saved, you're anathema. And that's what they did. They said, we sent letters back up to Galatians and said, I just want you to know, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you. That is your only source of salvation. If anybody else comes preaching any other gospel, like you have to be circumcised to be saved, then they're to be cursed. If an angel from heaven comes down preaching that, they're to be cursed. If anybody preaches anything but Jesus Christ died to save you, then they're to be cursed. Because that's not the gospel. It's not a gospel. It's not another gospel. It ain't a gospel at all because it has no good news in it. Again, as we said, very, very poignantly, it would be very bad news to all the women in the congregation if today I was preaching the gospel of salvation by circumcision. Okay, good luck. I don't know how you're supposed to bridge that gap. I don't know how you're going to get out of that one. But notice, though, as we've talked about before, when you look down in this chapter at the end, the the provisions that they gave to them, because, you know, we make the point, the law has been fulfilled. We're no longer bound by the rules of the law. The Jerusalem church, though, continued to practice the law in many of its forms. OK, we still practice the law with the Ten Commandments. OK. We're not antinomians. We still believe that there are moral, righteous laws that God gave us that we're to follow. In fact, Jesus said, honor, I mean, love God, love your neighbors. All of this is keeping the commandments and you're commanded to keep the commandments. Okay, that's how it goes. So it's not antinomianism. It's not that we don't follow this. We're required. We're bound. We're obligated. We're commanded to do these things. Okay, but the Jerusalem church kept a lot of the dietary practices and everything else. That's their culture. Let them do it. The Galatia church is not following that. You want to know why? It's not their culture. And what Paul and Peter and James and them were arguing for was quit trying to put metaphorically, quit trying to put circumcision on the Gentiles. Quit trying to make them to conform to Jewish traditions and laws when they're not Jewish. And Jesus saved them anyway. 
And Jesus said, I saved you in your current state as you are with your culture and heritage. And nowhere did I say, and now you need to be more Jewish. He said, I saved you and created you how you are. So quit trying to put circumcision on the Gentiles, Jerusalem church. God saved them like they are. He didn't save them like a future better version that looks more Jewish. He saved them like they are for his purposes. Guess what? The beautiful thing for us, God saved us like we are. He's not waiting for you to get to some future better version of yourself. He saved you where you are in all of your brokenness and all your messed upness and all of your prior baggage and everything. He saved you exactly how you are. Your quirks, your weirdness, your habits, your OCD, whatever it is. We are uniquely and wonderfully made. And God changed us profoundly. But we're still us. We still have us in us. Our bad dad jokes and everything. All of it's still in there. And Christ isn't going, when you get to the better version of yourself, then I will accept you into my fold. No, he took in the broken prostitute. He took in the woman with the seven demons. He took in the tax collector. He took in the Roman centurion. He said, all y'all come in here. I've given you a new heart, a new mind, a new operating system. You're going to still have all of your prior quirks. But I chose you and gifted you and blessed you and called you where you are. But in the closing, well, in verse 29, the last thing that he commanded to be sent to this Gentile church, he said, we do want you to send one thing to them, though, okay? We'll let them off the hook from the Jewish perspective for circumcision, but I am, we're going to throw just a little bit of law on them. We can't get out of this without putting just a little bit of law on them. So what we want to do is tell them to abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. Fare you well. Okay. Now I love that little like closing salvo he gives there. But that's the Jerusalem church. So they did give them some law based prescriptions that they felt were appropriate to follow. Now later Paul is going to write some letters where he's going to say things offered to idols don't matter. He's going to talk about Christian liberty and say whether you eat something offered to an idol doesn't matter. In fact in Corinthian letter that's where he writes it. It says... Is the idol anything? No, we know it's not. We know it's nothing but a dumb piece of wood. So if you eat something offered to it, it's not like it's anything. You can eat it. If you don't, you don't. If you drink, eat, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's his prescription. That's his Christian liberty statement that he makes. So even with what was prescribed here by the Jerusalem council to the Galatia church, he still, or the Gentile church, he's still making the point. He's like, yeah, that's fine. And we can do that. Okay. In fact, their reasoning for it was to kind of keep a little bit of peace with the the Jewish population that was there amongst the church in these areas. Don't go just full on Gentile and run everybody off. Okay. He says, instead, what I want you to do is use your Christian liberty to promote encourage, engage, and draw in, not stand on somebody's head saying nana nana boo boo. So the reason they put those things in there was because he says, don't walk up in front of your Jewish brothers and sisters who are in your church in Galatia, in Pontus, in wherever, and go chow down on a hog leg and go see what I can do and you can't. Paul writes extensively about that. He says, don't let your liberty become a stumbling block for somebody else. Now, 
Interestingly enough, in chapter 2, what we're going to find is that it's not the Gentiles' liberty, but rather the Jewish orthodoxy that causes a stumbling block. So as he goes forward, he says, and when, uh, in verse 6, But of, the, of these who seem to be somewhat, whatever they were, it makes no matter to me, God accepts no, no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. I'm not interested in the big wigs. I'm not interested in the ones who thought they were something and they're really nothing because God doesn't really care who you are. Okay, he says, I don't care who they were. I didn't entertain them for a minute. I didn't try to curry favor. I'm not trying to get my pockets lined. That's not what my mission was. My mission was to, uh, was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and was to tell the Jerusalem orthodoxy about the gospel in the Gentiles. Okay. But, contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed to Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter, the apostleship of the circumcision, was the same that worked mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars... Now, this is getting back to what happened in Acts chapter 15. Seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, unless there's coronavirus, that we should go to the heathen and they to the uncircumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same thing which we had forward to do. Now, that again falls under what was the prescription at the end of Acts chapter 15. Chapter 15. We're going to give you some little key things that we want you to make sure you do to kind of tie us all together. But you're free to go do what God called you to do in your uniqueness, in your unique areas. And we understand that you're not going to look like us. And he says it was James, John and Peter who agreed to this and said, we recognize that the Holy Ghost has called these people out of their uniqueness and they're not going to look like us. They're not going to act like us. They're going to be different. And it's okay. There are some core things that we want you to rally around. There are some core things like being good to the poor. That's still in effect. We still want you to rally around the core principles of love God with everything you got and love your neighbor. That's still in effect. We still want you to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's still very much in effect. And we still believe in a Trinitarian Godhead and we still believe, we still believe in those things. But your practices in the church at Galatia are going to look different. Your practices in the church at Corinth are going to look different. You're all called and uniquely wired in different ways. But there was a problem. In verse 11, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him, which basically means I went toe-to-toe with him, to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before, when certain came from James, again, we're coming from the Orthodox, we're coming from the Jerusalem church. James was what was perceived or was thought to be basically the bishop of the Jerusalem church. He was the one that took it over and was ruling the church in Jerusalem in that way. So some people had come from him. So we're coming from the ultra-Orthodox and we're coming out here to the boonies with all the Gentiles, okay? But when they were come, or, or some came with from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, talking about Peter. 
But when they were come, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So what you have here is Peter is out in Antioch. Peter is living it up with the Gentiles. He's eating with them. He saw that sheet man and he's diving in on some ribs, pork ribs, not brisket. He's diving in on ribs. All right. And he's hanging out with his Gentile buddies. And there's this beautiful unity in Jesus Christ. But what happens? Some of the ultra-Orthodox from the Jerusalem church, the ones who are the originals, the ones who are still very much Jewish, the ones who are still keeping a lot of the Jewish stuff, including dietary laws, comes in, sees Peter sitting there with a bunch of Gentiles eating pork ribs, and Peter says, "Uh uh-oh, I can't let them see me doing this. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him. In so much that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now, those are big words to basically say that Peter got up and left, moved away from them. He was all hanging out at a table, and now all of a sudden, Peter, with all his other Jewish cohorts that are in amongst all these Gentiles eating pork ribs, saw other Jews from home coming in, and they all got up, and they moved to the other side of the room, wiped their faces off and said, oh yeah, no, holy, 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 no pork for me. I don't eat that stuff. I'm not hanging out with Gentiles. Don't you know it's wrong for Jews to be near Gentiles? He and his Jewish cohorts did it. And the, the movement of it was so pronounced that Barnabas, who in Acts chapter 15 was arguing about the fact that the Gentile church was legit and followed Paul around, Barnabas is going, well, if Peter's doing it, If Peter's doing it, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do too. So Barnabas went off with him too. So now what you have done is in this church in Galatia, is you have just split Jew and Gentiles back apart. The thing that Paul's going to write about in the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesian church, he's going to talk about that middle wall of partition was shattered. That Christ didn't just die to make you a new person. He didn't just die to justify you. He didn't just die to save you. He died to set you free from these man-made trappings. He died to set you free from this religious zeal that would have you pointed back to a man-made issue. You separate yourself because you're racist, okay? And you're never going to find that in the Bible supported. You separate yourself because you feel like you're better than them. And you're never going to find that supported in the Bible. And in fact, what you find in the Bible is God saying, I broke down the wall of partition. You're going to be sitting on the bench, black, white, Chinese, Russian. And you're going to be sitting on the bench, clean person who's never done anything, drug addict, recovering, and prostitute that's out of the system. It says that's going to be what the church is made up of. My radical grace is going to bring those people together. And sins that you're going to look at and say, that is just unconscionable. I don't know how they could possibly do that. And God's going to say, watch me change them by my radical grace and sit them on the pew singing Amazing Grace by you. And and let's just go a bit further. You're going to hate heaven if you think it's all a bunch of really good looking white people. And you're going to hate heaven too if you don't like singing because there's going to be a lot of that going on. So you might as well just go ahead and get on board. He's giving the message over and over again. You can separate yourselves all you want to, but you don't find that in the Bible. 
You can separate yourselves all you want to and make yourselves in your little cohorts and hide off in your little clusters and talk about how right you are and everybody else is wrong. And what God is saying, I have torn down every wall you have put up. And not only that, I died to do it. So as much as you praise amazing grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what his blood accomplished, his blood accomplished that. So if you try to start throwing up paper walls again, then what you're basically doing is trying to circumcise the Gentiles. You're trying to put them into a box of a religious category that you have created and said, this is what's right and this is what's wrong because that's what I say it is. That's what my tradition is. That's what my cohort believes. That's what we have associated with. That's what through the history we've decided has been the most appropriate thing. And all I say is, well, what does it actually say in the Bible about it? Because I think Jesus is going to have a different point of view than you do. And oh, by the way, if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, I guess we need to do what the big man says, don't we? So here, when Peter does this, he causes all sorts of stumbling blocks for people. He has just like stabbed the Gentiles in this church in the back. He has reinstituted the division between Jews and Gentiles, basically telling this whole group over here, you're nothing but a bunch of dirty dogs that I can't associate with. He's a blatant hypocrite. This is the same joker that would go preach all the time about how the grace of God has united Jews and Gentiles and saved the, Jew, the Gentile church. And as in all these things, he's preaching grace about this all day, every day. But then in his practice, still has the heart of a racist. Now, here's the thing. In our own history, there has been plenty of times where racism in our own hearts has just been kind of glanced over. It would be say, well, you know, I'm not going to put it up there on the same level as adultery or cheating on your wife or murdering somebody or those kind of things. I mean, those kind of sins are just really big sins and drug addiction and pornography and that kind of stuff. We really need to, you know, racism, you know, that's kind of a cultural thing. And we live in the South. I mean, what can you do about it? It's cultural. It's just what we do. We still fly Confederate flags on the highway and all this stuff. I mean, you really can't say too much about racism, except Paul said, I ain't having it. Either if you're going to preach the grace of Jesus Christ that unites all men, then you better live like it. And I better not see you waving a Confederate flag or a Jewish flag or any other flag. Because that's not what you're called to. You're called to be a unifier, a peacekeeper that looks at every race, creed, and, and, and people around the world and say, guess what? It's called the kingdom of God and ain't it beautiful. Yes. So we have to be careful that we do not put man-made things ahead of Jesus Christ. I know we went a long way around to get back to that. But what I made the point was is that the stumbling blocks, because that's what everybody wants to get on. Whenever they talk about Christian liberty, they're all like, yes, it's okay for you to drink. Okay, that's an okay thing for you to do. It's not inherently sinful. It doesn't, you know, send you to hell if you have a glass of wine. Okay, Jesus and the apostles would all be going to hell if that was the case. They didn't drink grape juice. They drank wine. Okay, that's just what they drank. All right. I know as Baptists, we just don't want to believe that's true, but that's just the case. It is the reality. And guess what? You're not going to go to hell for doing it. If you have a predisposition for alcoholism, I would highly recommend against it okay but it's not going to send you to hell all right you get that 
People will take that Christian liberty, though, and they'll say, see, you have the Christian liberty to do this, but you need to be careful that you don't create a stumbling block for other people. And that's true. All right? I'm not walking around with like a, a, a fifth of vodka going, Christian liberty, Christian liberty, Christian liberty. Okay? That would just be, well, you know, it would be stupid, but... Um, so many, so many ways. Anyway, um, you know, that's, that's not what we're doing with it, okay? There's just all sorts of mental images that are running through everybody's head now. We're all off course. So that being said, we can use Christian liberty for good, and there are restrictions that we should place on ourselves so that we don't create stumbling blocks for people. But here's the other side of the coin we have to make sure we're not missing. The stumbling blocks in this story were not from the Gentiles' religious liberty, Christian liberty. It was from the Jewish traditionalism. That was the stumbling block. Because what did the traditionalism do? The circumcision thing that we said was a good and right thing, we have taken that and we've elevated it to be the thing. In fact, a replacement for Christ. And we've gone so far as to say the religious barriers of Jews and Gentiles. Let's slide that back into play. Basically, we've split everything back up. And so what what we find here in this story is that the stumbling box came from the ultra-religious people. Who were doing things that God had prescribed before. We need to make sure that we don't allow our religious traditions to be stumbling blocks to people either. So there's plenty of things that we get into with this, probably more than we have time to discuss. But look, we cannot take things that we like and love and worship them as brazen serpents. We cannot take things that are good and right things. Okay, so... Uh, you know, I, I get probably farther than I should into any of this, okay? But there are no litmus tests in the church except one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Repent and be baptized. That's all one. That's the, that's, that was it, Okay. No other litmus tests were put up. When Philip is on the road with the eunuch, the Ethiopian, he didn't, he didn't come up to him and say, okay, and now let's make sure you've got X, Y, Z right before we line up. He said, do you believe that this man that's talked about in Isaiah is Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe in him and submit to him as your Lord and master? Yeah, I believe he is the son of God. And he says, well, then what does hinder you from being baptized? Boom, that's it. There was no other tests. There was no vote. There was no, do I accept you? There was no, did you have the right version of the Bible? There was no other test that was put out there. So we need to make sure that we don't put tests there either. And we need to make sure that we don't put stumbling blocks by our traditions in front of people. We have to be more careful, I think, of that. Than us all going out to the bars later this evening and causing some stumbling blocks with people, okay? I don't think that's really going to get a whole lot of us. But what will get us is if we have this kind of look on you like, hmm, are you with the right group? 
Do you have the right Bible? Were you baptized the right way? Do you say the right things? How often do you go to church? Do you use... Do you, do you, what, what are these other things that we're going to look at and say, well, that's nice, but if you really want to be right, then you need to do it like I do it or we do it. If you really want to be correct, then you need to be kind of doing what, what we do and you need to look like... We do, and you need to buy into the man-centric things that we do, and you need to. We got to get, we got to get you looking just like us, because that's the right way. Instead, what Paul's going, dude? Jesus died to deliver you from that. He died to deliver you from that. He didn't die to put you back under the bondage of looking like a certain traditional image. To make you feel like you're saved. That's not what he did. Paul said, I'm thankful that he delivered me from that. The zealousness of my former tradition sent me to murdering Christians. The zealousness of Peter and James's disciples caused stumbling blocks for the entire Jewish Gentile congregation at the church at Galatia or Antioch. Let's not let our traditions interfere and be stumbling blocks to people seeking Jesus Christ. There's good and right things. I'm not saying you go throw stuff out, but realize that it's, it's Jesus. That's the most important. Not the name, not the title, not the Bible, not whatever, other, whatever thing that we might put in it. That's not what it's Jesus. That's the most important. That's who we're centered around. That's who we're preaching and proclaiming. And that's who we're calling people to. We're not calling them into the denomination. We're calling them into life with Jesus. That's what we're calling them into. That's what we want people to be delivered from is life outside of Jesus and come be in life with Jesus. That's the whole gospel message. So may God bless us to look at that, evaluate ourselves, see what those things are, and see if we're allowing things in our own lives to be stumbling blocks to ourselves or to others for Jesus. May God bless us to work on that.